Is that one okay? That's why. <laughs> it's always hard. There's always a delay. I think I went early, though. Okay. Let me just get myself ready. Get the phlegm out of the back of my throat so I'm not doing it later. <laughs> Don't put that in there, Seamus. He will now. Welcome to Kidney Essentials. This is a podcast for medical students, residents, and all nephrocurious practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. We're here to make nephrology more accessible one podcast at a time. And sexy. We're making nephrology sexy. The sexiest. Hashtag <laughs> make nephrology sexy again. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's start out with introductions. Number one, just as a... Let y'all know, Judy, unfortunately, is in Phoenix. Well, for her, fortunately. Well, is it's in 110 Phoenix. degrees in Phoenix right now, so I'm not sure she's feeling so fortunate about being in Phoenix. <laughs> Noted. But yeah. she is in Phoenix in July, as you said. Her daughter is an Irish dancer, and she's competing in nationals. So round of applause Yay. without making it sound really obnoxious Yes. Um, for Judy and her daughter. Absolutely. Okay, Sarah, how about you? So I'm Sarah Young. I'm a clinical nephrologist at the University of Colorado, and I practice at the CU uh, Anschutz campus. Um, I have no conflict of interest, and my Twitter handle is at kidneycritic. And I'm Sophia Ambruso. I am a clinical nephrologist at the University of Colorado and the Denver VA. I have no conflicts of interest, and my Twitter handle is at Sophia underscore kidney. All right, so if you are one of our 1,000 listeners, wait, wait, 3,000 listeners? I think it's over 3,000 listeners now, yeah. It's <laughs> kind of crazy. We're so famous. <laughs> <laughs> we're viral. We, we might have a little ways to go before we're famous, but you know, we'll take it. Anyways, please give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other learners can find us. Or if you have a complaint, please tweet at us. So, uh, getting to the nitty-gritty, greetings, everybody. It's another wonderful day to discuss diabetes and an even better day to talk about the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which we affectionately refer to as RAS. Interestingly, I say renin differently. How do you say renin? I say renin. renin. And you know what? There's a whole Twitter chat about this, I that renin, renin. Is, renin is something else in the body. And so it's renin. And it makes sense. Like renal, renin. All right. Well, we'll discuss this later. <laughs> I can tell you that I'm only a recent convert. So I used to be a renin, but okay. I am now a renin. It's I'm been already hardwired. You know, it's renin now. I can't, I can't change. <laughs> too old. And like your empagliflozin. <laughs> empagliflozin. <laughs> <laughs> and canagliflozin. That's normal, Sophie. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. So moving on. Um, so one cannot talk about diabetic kidney disease, its pathophysiology, or the medicines that we use to treat it without referring to the RAS. So let's revisit our last case, um, which was a classic presentation of diabetic nephropathy. For those of you that missed our previous two podcasts, um, I would highly recommend checking them out in no particular order, of course, but they do complement our diabetes series nicely. But back to our case as a reminder, you are consulted on a 45-year-old woman with poorly controlled type 1 diabetes mellitus, complicated by diabetic neuropathy, hypertension with worsening proteinuria, and GFR. 
Patient has 800 milligrams per gram of albuminuria, 16 milligrams per gram of proteinuria, and bland urinary dipstick. All right, now that we've got our case under our belt, let's move on to the meat and potatoes of this whole discussion. So Sarah, if left to its own devices, what is the natural progression of diabetic nephropathy? Okay, well, so patients with diabetes, not all of them get diabetic nephropathy, um, but a, a, about 50% of them do. And the first thing that happens is they have glomerular hyperfiltration, which basically results, the first thing that you see is an increase in their GFR. And um, that can happen as early as their first year where they have known diabetes. And then with time, that increase or that, that hyperfiltration progresses to glomerular hypertrophy, which means, you know, a big glom, mesangial expansion, and tubular hypertrophy. And that results in a large kidneys. And that's the hallmark of the disease. So these are the people who you ultrasound them and they have the 11 and a half centimeter kidneys or 12 centimeter kidneys. And the hyperfiltration is often followed by, or it's followed by albuminuria. And early on, that albuminuria will be you know, minimal with only 30 to 300 milligrams, but then that will pro um, progress to overt albuminuria and proteinuria. And that progression from low levels of albuminuria to overt proteinuria um, is uh, what happens before they progress to chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease. Yeah, so a lot of what Sarah is referring to is also part of the diagnostic criteria of diabetes. You get these big kidneys, you get this progression of albuminuria, um, but really we mentioned this hyperfiltration as this hallmark of early diabetic disease, but how does diabetes cause hyperfiltration? Well, I think that's a great question, Sophie, and I wish we had a great answer to it, but I'm not sure we have a great answer. I mean, there are a lot of factors um, that probably lead to the hyperfiltration in diabetes and diabetes that are incompletely in understood. But what we do know is that um, the RAS system is involved. And so patients with diabetes have high renin and aldo le um, levels, and this results in the afferent arterial which is the artery that's feeding the glomerulus. I always remember afferent because that's the one approaching, A for approaching the glomerulus. So the afferent arterial is relatively dilated and the efferent arterial, the arterial that's exiting the glomerulus, efferent, E exiting, um, is vasoconstricting. And so with, and so as you can imagine, if you had a hose with some holes in it and you have the water coming into the area that has the holes um, that part of the hose being big and the area coming out of the place where the holes are being constricted, it was going to push a lot of the water out through those holes. And that's what um, is happening. What That's what the RAS system is doing in the kidney. And this is referred to as intraglomerular hypertension. And what's interesting about that increased pressure in the glomerulus is that it can happen in the setting of not having systemic hypertension. So that's why, um, you know, RAS inhibition and, and is a, a big, plays a big role in diabetic nephropathy, even in patients who don't have systemic hypertension. Yeah. Um, well put, and I'm just going to summarize really quick. Um, what Sarah is saying is this dysregulated RAS system. So you've got, you have vasodilation of the artery feeding the glomerulus and vaso 
constriction of the artery leaving the glomerulus. So that increases the pressure within the glomerulus and that causes the hyperfiltration. Um, but now that we've kind of discussed our RAS system, I feel like we would not be doing you guys what we should be, or we'd be doing you all a disservice by not discussing the RAS system a little bit more. So let's just go forward now and dis- establish what the renin angiotensin aldosterone system really is. Sarah, um, you have a tough job ahead of you, but would you like to begin <laughs> I will try. trying to explore yeah, the so role just of to, the RAS? To, to, so we're going to take a moment in the podcast and, and move away from diabetic nephropathy to discuss the RAS system um, and why do we have a RAS system? Why does everyone have a RAS system? Um, we already discussed that it's dysregulated in diabetes, but the question is why do we have it? Well, so the RAS system plays a really important role in maintaining blood pressure, um, sodium excretion, and... Um, renal hemodynamics. And it's dysregulated in diabetes, but the whole point of it is to help, of it in normal settings, is to help maintain a blood pressure in stressful situations or if your blood pressure um, drops. It also helps to maintain filtration of your kidney at different blood pressures. And the key players in this system are renin or renin, depending on whether you're Sophie or Sarah, um, angiotensin 1, the angiotensin converting enzyme and angiotensin 2. Yes. It's actually more important than you guys realize, but what activates the renin angiotensin system? So so renin is sort of the first hormone that gets stimulated that then kind of results in the cascade of all the different other hormones. So in normal subjects, what normally affects renin is salt intake. So for example, I had Jimmy John's sandwich and potato chips for lunch today. And according to my Spark People app, it told me that was about 1,000 milligrams of salt. So that's half of my dietary allowance. So after that, I ate, after I ate that, my renin was low because my blood pressure and my volume were, if anything, up. And we, I wanted to increase excretion of salt and l- there was no need to raise my blood pressure. But let's take what my husband did today, which is he ran 12 miles. Um, he, he actually was, he was in Phoenix up Camelback Mountain at 100 degrees, and his renin level is high because he lost a lot of sodium and chloride, and so his renin is high, and um, he didn't consume any salt, so bad on him. And so that's what renin is, that's what stimulates renin in normal subjects, salt loss or salt consumption. In disease states, the stimulus to renin is usually low blood pressure, and that low blood pressure can be from, you know, loss of blood, um, you know, in sepsis where you have uh, lower systemic vascular resistance and you have hypotension, heart failure. Um, So in disease states that anything that causes hypotension is going to stimulate renin. Okay. So before I move on, Sarah, I do want to point out and to all the listeners here that Sarah's actually on a low salt diet based on what Spark People is telling us (laughs) and what she's telling us here. That was one meal. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, half, you know, 2,000 milligrams is a low-salt diet. That's true. But trust me, I made up for it at my breakfast and dinner. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, Sarah, if I get into a car accident and break my femur and have blood loss and my blood pressure drops, my RAS will be activated? Absolutely. So, Sophie, why don't you tell the audience how renin gets stimulated when you are hypotensive after your motor vehicle accident? 
Mm, yes, I will. It was devastating, but um, I have healed from it. I didn't really get a femur fracture nor a motor vehicle accident, but um, were I to have that and I were hypo- hypotensive or I had a low blood volume, essentially what's happening, there are a number of things that are sort of simultaneously happening, but one of which is that our carotid sinuses have these little baroreceptors in there. And um, when our blood pressure drops um, or we're in a low volume state, those baroreceptors are like, ah, um, and they... <laughs> they are aware. And they turn on the sympathetic nervous system. Um, So simultaneously, and basically what the sympathetic nerves, before I go on, what the sympathetic nervous system is going to do is it's going to cause a number of things, one of which is your heart's going to be beating faster. Um, uh, You will also vasoconstrict um, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, simultaneously in the kidney is experiencing sort of low perfusion pressures at, you know, that afferent arterial that we were talking about. That's the arterial that is, um, that is feeding our glomerulus. And when that happens, um, basically we have decreased sodium chloride delivery to the macula densa and, and the distal portion of the nephron. So mm-hmm. you have decreased blood flow coming in the vessel that's a- approaching the glomerulus and because of that, you have decreased sodium chloride filtration at the glomerulus, and that's why the macula densa gets less sodium and chloride. Right. And at the same time, we're also getting more proximal reabsorption of in within the proximal tubule reabsorption when that happens. So it's sort of the combination Excellent. of the two. Yes. Um, so with that decreased delivery to our macula densa, which is a you know delicious set of cells in the distal convoluted tubule, but that's getting a little bit more in depth. It's a distal portion of the nephron. All of these um, signal the specialized cells within that distal nephron, the um, juxtaglomerular apparatus. I have to say it slowly because I get my tongue tied. And then that is releasing renin. So when renin is released, there's a whole bunch of things that we'll talk about. Um, basically a cascade of, of um, enzymes and, and things that occur. But uh, renin is released nonetheless. Um, so to summarize before we move on to everything else, the three signals that are activating the RAS are one, low blood volume states or hypertension that are sensed by baroreceptors that activate the sympathetic nervous system, low perfusion pressures sensed by the afferent arterial in the kidney, and then low sodium chloride delivery in the distal nephron. You got it. I feel like singing a song like, I say renin, you say renin, <laughs> but I can't sing. So we'll, we'll see. I know. That. Our our audience is going to be feeling like they're getting slingshotted around. <laughs> All right. So, Sarah, in simple terms, if that's possible, what happens next once renin is released? Okay, so I can describe it, but we'll see whether um, I am able to describe it in simple terms. I guess our listeners will tweet at us if I don't get this right. So, um, so once renin is released, um, it's conversed. It converts angiotensinogen, which is made by the liver, to angiotensin 1. And then angiotensin 1 is is converted by the angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE, uh, to angiotensin 2 in the lungs. That's where uh, the ACE inhibitors work. And then angiotensin 2 goes on to have a myriad of systemic effects, including returning your blood pressure to normal uh, by causing vasoconstriction, excuse me, and um, signaling to the adrenals to release release aldosterone. Okay, so let's just briefly review how angiotensin II is acting to improve blood pressure. 
Um, number one, it's causing um, peripheral vasoconstriction just throughout, basically through the periphery. And what that does is it directs blood more centrally and it's gonna increase the blood pressure. The next thing it does is it increases um, absorption of sodium from the tubule of the kidney. Um, and it does that through several mechanisms that I don't think we need to go into extensively right now. Um, and then the last thing it does is it stimulates the re release of aldosterone from the adrenals. Um, and, and then one thing just to mention that's a little bit different about blood pressure, but it also maintains GFR. As um, we kind of mentioned earlier, the RAS inhibition it works really hard to maintain GFR. It's angiotensin II that's doing the majority of this. Um, at least when we're talking about the RAS system, um, mainly in low blood pressure set settings. And what happens is when that, when angiotensin II is increased, it's causing very potent um, afferent arterial vasoconstriction. Um, and there's just a little bit in the afferent, but mainly in the efferent. Uh, so overall, we get this dramatic peripheral vasoconstriction and increased reabsorption of salt through several mechanisms. And then Sarah, maybe you want to elaborate a little bit more about what's happening um, about regulation of the of the glomerular glomerular filtration rate. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite topics, and I actually think it's one of the reasons I fell in love with nephrology as a first year um, medical student and wanted to come into it. So I will tell you this also, Sarah. I love how you explain it because I didn't. I've never really thought of it this way, and it. I don't know why, but it just like suddenly makes it much more approachable, I think, for me and hopefully for everybody else. Okay. Well, this is how I explain it in my first year medical school class, so I hope I hope they found it as helpful. So, um, okay. So the kidney uses several mechanisms, collectively known as autoregulation, that modifies glomerular hemodynamics in an effort to preserve GFR. And what that allows you to do is to preserve your GFR constant when your blood pressure is 80 over 40 or, you know, 170 over 90. Um, and these mechanisms are also what keep you from not making urine if you were to stand up. I mean, can you imagine if, if a drop in your afferent arterial pressure led to a drop in your um, GFR, every time you stood up, you would not pee. And if you lay down and you were watching a scary movie and your pressure shot up, you would pee too much. So autoregulation um, keeps your GFR stable over this wide range of blood pressures. And the, the, the mean arterial pressure at which autoregulation is good is between about 60 and 140. That's why in the ICU we often use 65 as where we want people's maps to be. Um, because once you get below 65, autoregulation becomes impaired. So how does the kidney do this? How does the kidney maintain constant GFR with these wide variations in systemic um, pressure? Well, when the blood pressure is low, um, renin angiotensin II will be high and it will squeeze down on the efferent arterial, increasing the pressure in the glomerulus much more than its effect on the afferent arterial. So that will maintain the pressure in the glomerulus despite the low systemic blood pressure. And when the blood pressure is high, there will be no renin or angiotensin around. So this will lead um, to a non-constricted or opened efferent arterial decompressing the glomerulus. And so the effect of this preferential efferent vasoconstriction by angiotensin II on the efferent arterial will preserve the GFR in the setting of low kidney perfusion pressures. Mm. Mm. That was nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do think that, uh, well, who knows, but... 
Had I been a med student and you'd explain that to me, I'd be like, oh, uh, well, that you, makes sense. Um, can you write that up so I could put in my promotion stuff? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll send you an email tomorrow. <laughs> my dossier. You can send me any e- emails, too, about how amazing I am, and I'll sure, put that in my dossier. For your dossier. Also. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. So, and then the last thing um, I want to mention is that when the blood pressure is low, angiotensin II is high, stimulates the release of aldosterone. We haven't spent too much time on aldosterone, but it's also an important um, a hormone. It's released by the adrenals, and that's stimulating sodium re- reabsorption in the distal nephron and helps to raise the blood pressure as well. So, really, the renin aldo system is essential to keeping us alive. And you all are listening today. Because you have a functional RAS. Yes, it keeps us alive and it keeps us peeing. Mm-hmm. Or not peeing when we shouldn't be. <laughs> right, not peeing too much. <laughs> <laughs> or at least making urine. I mean, it has no control over our urethral sphincter. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. That we know of. <laughs> it does a lot. Okay, well, we digress. So let's get back to how this is relevant in patients with diabetic nephropathy. I know you're probably getting tired, Sarah, but you're our, our resident ex, um, expert right now. Um, <laughs> That's sad. No, I'm just there's two of us. <laughs> um, so we were talking about how an overactive or dysregulated ra- dysregulated RAS system is responsible for you know basically what's happening in diabetic nephropathy. Um, especially the hyperfiltration. Can you elaborate on how this is happening? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, you know, the the basics are that the diabetic milieu um, leads to the generation and circulation of advanced glycation end products, um, elaboration of growth factors, and a whole host of hemodynamic and hormonal changes. And this collectively, this results in glomerular hyperfiltration um, through activation of the RAS system. And this glomerular hyperfiltration occurs, as we said, because renin and angiotensin II are stimulated. And as the GFR falls, the um, this RAS system gets um, stimulated even more as um, sodium and chloride deliber- delivery to the macula densa decreases further. Yeah, it kind of seems like this downward spiral if we don't do anything to intervene. Absolutely. It absolutely is. Um, and so that's why we thought diabetic nephropathy was sort of a good disease state to think about the importance of the um, renin angiotensin 2 system because the RAS system because it's it's dysregulated and if we don't address it it leads to progressive kidney disease okay I think that um, sums it up quite nicely so left unchecked just as a summary here diabetes wreaks havoc on the kidney um, prolonged hyperfiltration, extended exposure, angiotensin II, hyperglycemia, resultant advanced glycation end products. That one's a mouthful for me. Um, all of those lead to unregulated oxidative stress. Inflammation induces in endothelial and in tubulo interstitial injury. And it's, as we said, it's just this continuous problem that just, just um, leads to more and more injury. Long-term oxidative stress, exposure to inflammatory cells and inflammatory mediators, glomerular sclerosis, tubular atrophy, all of those um, come together and lead to declining GFR and, um, in the grand scheme of things, um, CKD and then progression to end-stage kidney disease. If it all comes back to hyperfiltration and increased intraglomerular pressures, 
What interventions do we have that can modify this and slow the progression of diabetic nephropathy? Yeah, so, I mean, I think most of you probably know um, that RAS inhibition and specifically angiotensin-converting enzymes and angiotensin-receptive blockers have proven to be the single most effective therapy for slowing the progression of diabetic nephropathy in the past few decades. Um, And there are, you know, several studies that have shown this both in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. There does not appear to to be a benefit to... um, ACE inhibitors in type 1 diabetes before patients have albuminuria, um, so there's no point in giving that to them early, Um, although there are some studies in type 2 um, diabetes that have shown sort of mixed results, but at least some studies have shown um, starting them on an ACE inhibitor might might prevent albuminuria altogether or at least slow it down. Um, And both have been shown to prevent transition from albuminuria to overt proteinuria, and we know that progression of albuminuria is a huge risk factor for progressive kidney disease. And then RAS inhibition has also been shown to prevent the progression of disease in patients with overt proteinuria. And when I say progression of disease, I mean doubling of the serum creatinine. That's been shown both in type 1 and type 2 um, diabetes. And so RAS inhibition has been really the mainstay uh, and really one of the only therapies we've had to prevent the progression of um, diabetic nephropathy until more recently when the SGL2 inhibitors came um, out. And so for that, I'm going to turn to Sophie for you to discuss SGL2 inhibitors. Sure. Before I do that, yeah, Sarah, but, but before I do that, I do want to just, you know, let's put this straight out there that RAS inhibition, so RAS blocking agents, and the ones that we're talking about are, are um angiotensin 2 receptor blockers and our ACE inhibitors. So in our angiotensin converting enzyme, um, the, the inhibitors for that. So those, that's our RAS inhibition and that's what we have available um, or what we've had available for so long. And the evidence really supports those um, in the treatment of patients with diabetic nephropathy. And, you know, we really have hit patients hard with this. However, although RAS blockade is like our number one the data now suggests that using more than one agent, even though that's the practice that was done not too long ago, is actually maybe effective in reducing proteinuria, but there's a lot of adverse events that occur with it, as you can imagine hyperkalemia, acute kidney injury, increased cardiovascular events that, that, are, that are unsavory and really aren't that helpful, particularly in um, an intervention that's not actually preventing end-stage kidney disease. So that is something that's not done anymore. Um, so we do not put more patients on more than one RAS blockade agent. So we do not put patients on an ACE and an ARB or an ARB and an ACE. Yeah. Correct. Great. All right. Now let's get into the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and these We're really excited about these because a bunch of data has just come out. And, you know, it kind of feels like we ought to be putting it in the water right now. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. But for the time being, you know, these are um, sodium glucose, uh, sodium glucose <laughs> transport inhibitors. I don't know why. <laughs> All right. There actually is um, more than one inhibitor. That's why it's SGL2. But, yeah. Right. Right. No, I don't know. The, the GL just, I'm like, where's that GL coming <laughs> from? I've never seen the, what's the look? So anyways, the sodium glucose tram- transporters too, these are in the proximal portion of the tubule. 
And what they're supposed to do in normal health, people who are not diabetics, is that they actually reabsorb um, glucose and sodium together. So they are reabsorbed into the blood and the proximal tubule. Um, and essentially, if we are filtering you know, our glucose by our glomerulus, um, if we're not a diabetic, we actually are reabsorbing 100% of that glucose. What happens in our diabetics is, or patients that have diabetics, is that it exceeds the amount of glucose that's in our in our tubule exceeds the amount that we can reabsorb. So then glucose and sodium are being peed out. That's how people can get really volume depleted and dehydrated at times um, if they have really high blood sugars. In any case, along comes our SGLT2 inhibitors. And um, what these do is these are blocking those SGLT2, those co-transporters. So we actually have a lot more glucose in our urine. And we have a lot more now sodium in our urine because there's not that co-transport across the membrane. And it's being peed out. What's happening, though, is that as it's being peed out, we're getting more sodium delivery to our macula densa and then what we essentially are shutting off our um, renin-angiotensin system or renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, our RAS. And in doing so, we are essentially trying to um, modify our glomerular dysfunction and our hyperfiltration that's happening. Now, what's interesting about the SGLT2s that we don't need to go into too much because it's not completely understood is it seems like there is another effect, a kidney protective effect, beyond this um, RAS deactivation and return of the glomerular hemodynamics closer to normal. Um, And that's not well understood yet, but uh, certainly there's a lot of people that are looking at that because it seems like it has anti-inflammatory effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, In the grand scheme of things, though, what we're now seeing is that um, these SGLT2 inhibitors have um, mortality, cardiovascular, and reno, um, renoprotective activity. And so this is something that we are really pushing hard in our patients. Um, you know, there's a, the whole um, discussion going on about flozinating your patient, so getting these patients on them, and we're seeing that it's really um, beneficial. And it's something new that we actually have to offer our patients beyond our just simple RAS inhibition. So, I think I've rambled on about that for a yeah. while. Do you so have anything to, to add, Sarah? In, in- in addition to helping prevent progression of chronic kidney disease, which one of the methods in which we think it helps prevent progression of chronic kidney disease and diabetes is that it inhibits the renin-angiotensin system. But it also has this great cardiovascular benefit and decreases hospitalizations from heart failure as well. So um, lots of reasons why we kind of think everyone should be on SGL2 inhibitors. There you have it. Yeah. Sophie, you want to take us through our learning points from this podcast? Mm -hmm. Okay, so number one, stimulus for RAS activation is low blood volume or low blood pressures and decreased renal perfusion pressures. Number two, RAS works to return blood pressure back to normal through several mechanisms, including peripheral vasoconstriction and sodium reabsorption in the tubule through angiotensin 2 and aldosterone activity. Three, Angiotensin II also works to maintain GFR in low kidney perfusion pressure states. Four, we have a lot of these today. Four, <laughs> four, hyperfiltration is a hallmark of early diabetic nephropathy and occurs because of dis, a dysregulated RAS system. And five, modifying RAS activity through ACE inhibitors 
angiotensin II receptor blockers, SGLT2 inhibitors, works to return glomerular hemodynamics back to a more normal physiologic state and can slow progression of diabetic kidney disease and diabetic nephropathy. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it was nice finally getting another podcast out. We are going to try to get one out uh, once a month moving forward. We had a little... We're going to get there. Yeah, we had a little couple challenges, both technical and scheduling. Mm-hmm. But thank we you. do miss Judy. We do miss Judy, but she will be back at our next podcast. And well, if, thanks. if any of you listeners would like to participate in our podcast, send us a, ta- uh, a message on Twitter, a tweet, a t- DM. <laughs> <laughs> And, All uh, of the above. Give us some ideas of what to cover and if you'd like to join us. Thanks, you guys. I hope you all found this a useful podcast today. Up next, we have don't decided. know yet. <laughs> <laughs> probably, but it'll be good. Probably something about progenorrhea from our podocyte biologists. Sarah, do you want to do the credits and yes, I'll do the disclaimer? Credits. Thank you to Seamus Klingsporn, my son who just graduated from high school, for editing. Woohoo! And Josh mm-hmm. Strong for graphics. And legal disclaimer, um, normally done by Judy, this is a podcast for educational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts. This podcast should not be used as medical advice or for treatment purposes. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night or day.